G'day and welcome back to the Humans of Agriculture podcast. I'm your host, Ali Lalith. Thank you for tuning in. No matter where you're listening to our podcast, I'd like to extend my respects to the traditional custodians on the lands, wherever you are. It's the beauty of this content. It travels far and wide. And today I'm sitting on the land of the Yagara and Turbal people here in Brisbane. And I'd like to acknowledge Indigenous Australians as the oldest storytellers. They've used stories to create connection, pass on wisdom and share knowledge for tens of thousands of years and hundreds of generations. And we would love to just be able to harness a little bit of that incredible storytelling ability and, and bring these stories to life. Today, I'm sitting down with an exciting an amazing human of agriculture. Jason Strong is the Managing Director of Meat and Livestock Australia and I'm really excited to share a little bit more about Jason's story with you. He's always grown up in and around cattle. He's had that absolute love for them for as long as he can remember and it definitely comes out in this chat. He's found a lot of joy and fulfilment whether it was in the cattle yards, around the show rings, it's the friends and networks that it's able to develop from him being a young fellow but actually he still finds himself back in the ring a little bit and I may or may not have seen him in the ring once or twice as well, which has actually caught me by surprise. Today, I really want to know about Jason's story. How's this passion for what he does, how's it been shaped and and why does he continue to show up and influence and impact positively the Australian red meat industry and also Australian ag more broadly? In his early days, he played a key role in the establishment of Meat Standards Australia and he's been given the chance to work internationally. Ultimately, I wanted to understand a little bit more about where the beef industry is heading. They've set some really clear targets for where the industry wants to be by 2030 to be carbon neutral. And I wanted to understand from Jason, well, how have they come about setting these targets? Have they re-evaluated? Where does the science sit on these different things? And also to where does marketing and the ability to transfer these stories and information come in? I was really keen to understand the whole plant-based thing. Is it a real threat or is it just a perceived threat? And we chat a little bit about values, ethics, how it all kind of comes together in what was a really enjoyable chat here in Brizzy. So let's just jump into it. Jason, you're the CEO or Managing Director of Meat and Livestock Australia, a big business, big industry for Australian agriculture and a really significant one. And I think really keen to understand some different aspects around the sustainability journey of the industry, but more so probably interested to understand more about you and how your career pathway has shaped this passion. Because I think when I talk to people in agriculture and I say, why are you involved? They always seem to come back to the people aspect, which works pretty well for us. <laughs> Firstly, welcome to the Humans of Agriculture podcast. Thanks, Ollie. It's, it's great. I'm really looking forward to having a chat with you. Last time I saw you, we were, it was the Sydney Easter show, and I reckon it was maybe the first time I'd met you. And I've got to say, I was actually surprised to see you were down at the Sydney Royal. It was a weekend and you were manning, it was, I think, in the Woolies Pavilion or something like that. And it was about helping to educate and share the red meat story with these Sydney consumers. Can I ask, as the CEO on your weekend, why were you there? I actually don't remember that, but um, but that's good, right? Because I think that goes to the core of why I would do those sorts of things. And um, without either of us realising it, I think you've you've actually got very quickly to the core of what drives so much of what I do. Um, many years ago, uh, I've had a number of experiences in my career which have been quite uh, in, influential in positive and negative ways, you know, and you can learn from negative and uh, I had a pretty challenging experience in a job years ago, but as part of that, 
there was a chap there that had all these really neat little sayings which have stuck with me over time. And, and one of them was, the true evidence of a man's character is how he spends his time when he doesn't have to. And I'm in a very public role in as managing director of MLA, for better or worse. Um, on, on the good side, you have a voice to talk about all the great things about the industry. On the ne negative side, you become a target for kind of everything. Um, but but at the core is my passion for the industry, and that that's why I'm here. I, I love my job, and it's a great job, and it's a wonderful thing to be able to work for MLA and the people we have and the things we can do. Um, but it's this underlying passion for the industry. And how we s tell our story and share what we do is incredibly important. And things like the, the show, like these to show, uh, you know, where else do you get an opportunity where eight or 900,000 people over a 12-day period walk through a set of gates and they're, they're kind of a captive audience. Um, and I can have a disproportionate impact with the experience I have and the ability I have to answer the range of questions that I can to any consumer or potential consumer walking past in that type of environment. And that's a really neat thing to be able to do. And and neither them or anybody else will know about it. And that's quite okay. Um, so I, I just didn't realise that people noticed that I do that. <laughs> so, <laughs> Always watching. Yeah. No, like, and I think it was, I was, I'll say surprised, but then at the same time, really probably shouldn't be if that's genuinely what you're passionate about. Like, how do you go when you have, moments like that, say, in the public and in your role, which is really looking forward of where the industry is in five, ten, however many years. Look, do, you, do you find yourself coming back in after a weekend away like that with buzzing? Absolutely. Um, and uh, the thing that probably gives me the most motivation is when we, we, we talk about the opportunity and what we can do. I think one of our biggest challenges as an industry, and, and I often get asked things like, you know, what, what's our biggest challenge in front of us? And quite often we go to technical or structural things. But I, I really believe one of our, our greatest challenges is not taking advantage of the opportunity that's in, in front of us because we, you know, we, we have a really inherent negativity in the way that we uh, approach things. So the, the thing that really gets me buzzing is when I'm talking about as an industry you know what we do or what we can do and there's so many incredibly cool things that our industry's done over decades years generations and you and you look at the way we solve problems the way that we deal with challenge the way we find solutions and I mean talking to anybody about that is is absolutely what what I get a buzz about I'd love to know because I find myself getting getting stuck a little bit sometimes where I'll say the realist comes in, but actually that realist is probably a master as a pessimist for myself. Um, and I think of it in, in my own kind of context, but is that something that you've, you've had to learn over your career to actually, I guess, pull yourself away from that, as, especially as a, a leader and a manager in a business to remain hopeful and optimistic, even in the face of uncertainty? It really is. It really is a challenge. And I'm sure some of my team and close friends would say that I do that really badly, you know, because I, I still take everything about our industry so incredibly personally, um, because I'm, I'm so positive and, and, and so excited about what it is that we do. I, uh, I, I do take that stuff very, very personally. And I think we've got to find this balance between being, being a realist about what is the challenge in front of us, but then also being able to see the opportunity that we have and and one of the things that has struck me in the last couple of years 
more than ever, I think, and particularly because we've had a couple of issues like exotic animal diseases, for example, and, and, and now sort of our weather and pricing challenges, um, just how negative we can be. Um, and what we forget is that there's no challenge or problem that our industry hasn't solved or resolved. And the thing we're really good at is being confronted with a challenge, getting past it on top of it and finding a better solution. Yet it seems like when we get hit with the next challenge, our, our first response is how bad the challenge is rather than this is just the next thing that we're going to deal with as an industry, just like we have every other time. And uh, yeah, that, that's a you know, big shift that would be wonderful if we could make that as, a, as an industry. It is. Now, the beauty of podcasts is you can go on tangents. A couple of weeks ago, I was at the National Drought Forum and we were having a discussion about the impacts of drought on local communities. But then I also had this look at, and I kind of think what we might end up dancing around today is this piece around mindset and actually what is the outlook and what's kind of real versus what are we telling ourselves. But I I kind of was sitting there and I thought one of the positives that come from drought, and I remember last time hearing stories of school kids that would get up in the morning and they'd help feed stock and then they'd go and do their school day and they'd come back and they'd help mum and dad feed the stock. And it was it was actually building this true resilience in these kids. And I thought, imagine what the business world and what our city cousins and everyone else could actually learn from what these kids are going through, which is, yes, an extremely challenging time in the face of drought, but actually then how that will shape them for the rest of their lives kind of going forward. Yeah, it's interesting um, how, how we take those learnings and and put them to the use for good rather than evil, I think is one of our big challenges. And because resilience is a really good term. And as an industry, we are incredibly resilient. And the reason why we're incredibly resilient is because of the resilience of the people that are in the industry. And a lot of that has actually been shaped by challenge. And and the drought example is a really good one. You know, how, how people you know, lean into that challenge and find a way through it the thing we don't talk about is how those skills and that resilience and those learnings are then put to fantastic use when things turn so why can organizations or why can operations be so productive and impactful and respond so quickly when it does rain or when there is market opportunity part of it is because they've you know built these skills and resilience in the time of challenge because they've worked out how to get through it. Uh, and and I, I don't think we make those connections well enough. We talk more about, well, the perception I think is where we, we do talk more about survival and um, the successes we got to the end rather than the the building of resilience, like you say. And it's, um, I, was, I was responding to an inquiry just this morning uh, about the, the the current challenge and the you know, the disparity that we're seeing in so many things, and it, it's hard to talk about the future and the opportunity and the things that are in that uh, uh, in front of us a year or two down the track and how fantastic these things are going to be when the immediate challenge this morning, this afternoon, today, this week, next week is so confronting, and um, and that's that's a a real difficulty for us to to strike that balance in a in a constructive way. And I think it's the, it's the challenge, isn't it, where you get using you get stuck in the weeds versus looking ahead, but it's where are the opportunities and who are those people actually around you that are saying, actually, let's just get off farm for a day or so and let's talk about where you see it going and, and kind of just getting away from the day-to-day. I want to jump back to talk more about you because the other thing 
from the Sydney Easter show was um, I think that afternoon you were going to judge cattle as well. And this is something I think your connection to the grassroots is obviously there, but judging cattle, did it come through your childhood and, and really form and shape who you are today? Absolutely it did. It, it, it's one, been one of the most influential things on on my life um, and my career and there's so much more to it and, it, and it's really interesting the the perspective that comes from that. And it's good, like you say on the podcast, we can head down tangents. <laughs> a different view of someone who uh, realised I was more involved with the Sydney show recently said, "Well, why would you do that? You know, given the way that the world's moved on, and and uh, you know, what's the value in showing cattle when we should be using data and information and EBVs and other things?" I said, "Hold on, this has got absolutely nothing to do with that whatsoever. This is actually about how we engage with the community, and we've got." this critical mass of people that's kind of a captive audience they are going to come through the gate and they're going to have to walk past so let's grab them as they go but it's actually more than that when we think about the cattle judging piece um i got involved in cattle judging because i love cattle I, I can't remember the point in time when i didn't want to be a cattle farmer you know and and that's you know been a big ch- big chunk of what i've done over my career so i've, I've just had this passion for cattle and livestock and anything to do with livestock and when i was in my late teens, early 20s, any opportunity I could find to do more with livestock stock, I took it. I was actually in agropolitics in my early 20s because the Cattlemen's Union was a cattle-specific organisation and that sounded like the sort of thing that I'd want to be involved with because I was all about cattle. Um, and cattle judging was the same thing, the opportunity to spend more time looking at cattle, talking about cattle, evaluating them. But what I didn't realise is the opportunity that provided and um, sort of the big career opportunities or impacts on my career was uh, you know, one of the big ones was uh, winning the National Angus Judging Competition, which got me a trip to the US, which at that point in my life, I'd sort of had no line of sight to ever being able to do something like that. So that was an unbelievable opportunity. And part of that was doing livestock judging at the University of Illinois. And I got a very different perspective around judging from that process because it was more structured and it's actually a credit-based course at the university you do livestock judging or you can do you can do wool judging or horse judging or you know meat judging and so there was so much more to it than just evaluating livestock how do you make a decision how do you explain the decision you made how do you defend the decisions you've made how do you engage how do you spend time traveling with other people and learn social skills and meat producers and you know, a whole range of things which then uh, flew from that and I've done a lot of it over the years and I, I enjoy it one of the things I really enjoy about it now is the opportunity to evaluate livestock that's great but then to also talk about the cattle and the people and the industry and uh, something like the Sydney show you know, being able to talk about how fantastic the cattle are but also the industry and the things that we're doing and and be part of sharing that message and more broadly so like what is if you think back what is your the earliest memory when you realize that you loved agriculture and i'm guessing especially cattle (laughs) i i really don't know i don't know the point in time like i can't remember a point in time when i didn't so lucky enough to always grow up on farms mum and dad were first generation farmers and uh, you know, the, the typical of the first generation farmers of, you know, borrowing and not having critical mass and working off farm and all of those things. So, um, you know, that, that working on the farm bit, going to school, those sort of, all those things really resonate. Um, 
and regardless of the challenge, I always remember loving it and uh, the farm and the livestock and, and those things were, were a real critical uh, part of, of my childhood. So even uh, you know, my earliest memories that you know, were on a farm at Walker was from when I was one or a bit less than one, I suppose. Um, but even in those early school years and uh, those earliest memories are, are all very fond memories about cattle on the farm and, and, and sheep as well, but, but livestock and, and being on a farm. So it's it's been ingrained in me for a long time, but I, I don't know what the trigger was. I'm not sure what it was. I was chatting to someone yesterday and they said there's something about, there's something about agriculture. If, if you're born into it, it never leaves you, but you can also be like me and there's plenty of others who have come into agriculture and once you, you get a taste for it, it's incredible, and there's something that j- just sticks with you and, and kind of draws you back. Yeah, there really is. And um, I was actually thinking about you know, the sort of things we might talk about. And when we think about agriculture, people often talk about what, what are the things that bring you joy. And um, uh, you know, a, a new calf from a heifer that you know was born on the farm, and you know who her mum was and who her sire is, and the Dad's a bull you've been interested in seeing what sort of progeny is going to be produced, what sort of progeny is going to produce. And you see that calf that gets up and runs around and enjoys life, you know. That's, uh, that sort of thing's pretty exciting, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, that, you know, seeing the, you know, the fruit of your labour or the fruit of your, um, you know, your efforts, those sorts of things to, to see the, uh, um, you know, the, benefit or impact you have by you know, making decisions to do things differently with the land or pasture or I'm sure on the same on the cropping side and uh, the you know you, you get to interact with nature and elements and livestock and 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 see a result out the other side it could be heartbreaking too um, but the um, and maybe what it is, maybe it's kind of the career version of golf. You know, the, the there's enough of, <laughs> enough of the weekend hackers saying, you know, you get one good shot every six months and you keep playing golf yeah. <laughs> forever. You know, maybe maybe farmers are the same. You know, we've got all these challenges, but interspersed are these incredible moments of joy um, where you know you see the the benefit of what you've done or been involved with, or or, or you just see the you know, the amazement of nature and 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 how that happens and and works. Um, yeah, I'm not I'm not not sure how to whether there's a, a more sophisticated description to it, but um, it's it's very much a you know a feeling and a connection I think with agriculture. It's a really interesting question. What would you say brings you joy in what you do now? It is a really interesting one. It's probably a bit odd for someone in my role, the type of roles that I've been in, which are very over many years have been very public and front facing. The things that really bring me joy is the success of others and. Uh, whether that's family or friends or staff or the industry, um, you know, being involved in things that, uh, that, that create and deliver benefit to others and whether that's um, just joy or pleasure or, or whether it's mere material benefit or whatever it might be, that I, I really get a kick out of that and, and whether that's um, uh, seeing something that... MLA does as an organisation that you can see a knock-on benefit to the organisation and the industry. You know, having having someone talk about you know, how fantastic it is that consumers have a commitment to our product in international markets because of the consistency and quality of it, which has come from MSA. You know that like, that's incredibly cool. That's the sort of stuff that I get really excited about from an industry point of view. But to 
to see um, people develop, you know, people that have um, that you've worked with or you've shared things with that are better for it, or that they do something that is you know, over and above what they might have been able to do before because of some interaction we might have had. That that I find you know, really uh, re- really rewarding and um, doing things with agriculture. You know, I find that um, you know very rewarding, and I, I enjoy that. You know, it's yeah, it's hard to imagine a more you know, relaxing or peaceful activity than wandering along behind cattle out in a paddock. I was going to say taking them somewhere, or not even having to take them somewhere. You know, wandering. You know, that sort of thing is 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 a you know, wonderful thing to do. Um, but also, I think sharing it with others as well, and you know, family, friends, your workmates, uh, and and ag's one of those wonderful wonderful things where you know, the the networks and connections we have in agriculture and that sort of common purpose and understanding I think is really important. Absolutely. And I was going to say just on that that happy place of wandering behind stock, dad's come to farming and agriculture later in life and he's definitely got just a little hobby block. I tell you, I reckon he, he divided his paddocks up to make them smaller just so he can sit behind the cattle more often while he moves them. <laughs> Absolutely. What a, what a great plan. And <laughs> It's one of those really good examples, right? It doesn't matter how you get there. So, so he's doing a fantastic job of resting and putting grazing pressure on his paddocks. Most analysed um, farm in Australia, probably. <laughs> the reason why he's doing it is so he can move the cattle, but yeah. Yeah, they're actually having a positive impact on the on the grass and soil as well. So, what was it that took you away from working inside the farm gate? A couple of things. So, the big shift initially was after I went to the US the first time. Uh, I spent a bit of time on livestock judging and then also um, I spent a time with the meats program uh, with the meats judging team as well. And 17 years is a bit of time. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, that was the start of that. That was the start of that program. So I'd travel with the, uh, the University of Illinois meat judging team. And as part of that, I was just going to be a cattle farmer. That was going to be my plan. Um, and while I was over there, I was like, this meat grading thing's cool. I'm going to go home and be a, I'm going to go home and be a meat grader. So came back to Australia and I called one of my lifelong mentors and still is um, Greg Chappell, who was my ag teacher at Farrah. Um, yeah, cool. uh, uh, he's now at Glen Ennis at Dalvin Angus. And at the time, he was working in the industry. He, I think he was working for Osmeat or, or AMLC at the time. Rang him up and said, chaps, I know what I'm going to do with my career. I'm going to be a meat grader. And he said, well, problem is we don't have a meat grading system. It's like, well, let's set one up. <laughs> so, well, there's a few of us been working on that for quite a few years. It's like, well, what have you guys been doing? You know, youthful exuberance. Yeah, um, that and beauty and naivety. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, the, the number of things I've done in my career that I look back and it's like, if I only I knew. Um, but that was the start of my you know, involvement in, in MSA and the, and the off-farm type activities. And, and I suppose that was the first real sort of step to doing something that was going to help the industry because it very quickly went from I'd like to be a meat grader which was probably if there had been a meat grading system in Australia that probably would have been a passing interest and I would have gone back to being a farmer but that's what really got me on this path of hold on we don't have a meat grading system these guys do have a meat grading system I can see all the benefit of a meat grading system so so why don't we have that you know what what could I do to actually help make that happen and that's been probably the underlying um, theme of, of my career. You know, it's how how can I actually help make something happen which is better for the industry. And that so that was the real, that was a real start. I'm interested. So, like, was it literally just a conversation with 
Craig Chapel that led into that? Like, because I think something like that, it's a, it's a brand new initiative into an industry which is fairly traditional. But how do you, as a, a young person, take that actual career step to get involved in something which is completely transformative and new? There's probably quite a few conversations which probably became quite annoying for chaps along the way. <laughs> um, but there was already work being done. And so Rod Polkinghorne was already doing work with Alpha with the lot feeders. And they were, the lot feeders were um, absolutely the, the leaders in that whole process. And um, over, I want to say it's only a couple of conversations, it's probably quite a few more than that. And, <laughs> and eventually, Chap said, you, know, you need to meet Rod Polkinghorne. And, and we ended up having a call together. You know, ha- and I then got involved with the work that the Chaps and Rod and then John Webster, who was at um, Meat Research Corporation at the time, was sort of overseeing and managing. And the, the lot feeders were, were absolutely the sort of the horsepower supporting it from an industry point, it point of view. And, and then I got involved as the, the person who actually knew a bit actually about meat grading. So, um, so you know, chaps manage the industry engagement, producer, supply type activities. Rod drove the you know, standard science development piece. John drove the you know, the support and the supply and the, the funding support and the industry oversight from an MRC point of view. And, and I was the meat grader. And, and that, that was sort of the start of the, the core of how we went. And that was all initially all under the umbrella of the, the lot feeders. And that was... Um you got your dream job. What's it like now to see the the evolution? So um, I'm trying to think. I should know the name of the business. Completely slips on. Meat Standards Australia. No. So, um, so seeing that evolution from like how MSA has has evolved from individuals actually assessing it to now seeing the role of technology. I know you've you got Dexer and other things. Is that involved? But there's also I should remember. I know Callan works for them. Callan Daly. Um. Hot carcass measurement. With oh, the, the MEQ Pro. Yeah, those ones. The MEQ Pro. <laughs> well, yeah, what's it like to see that evolution? In, I'm going to say quite a short time, really. Yeah, I think it's fantastic. It's great. It's only it's it's only 25 years, right? But re- I mean, the material bit was done the first sort of 10 or 15. Um, but to be in a position now where more than half of our cattle are graded, and and those automated assessment systems like the MEQ probe and others. Um, the industry's been working on them for 20 or 30 years um, and to start seeing them come to life is fantastic. I'm going to say it was a year or two ago, it might have been two or three years ago, but it was while I've been in this role, um, there was a, uh, a very earnest and enthusiastic employee that um, works for us that uh, I was just having a general chat with about some of the things we do and they very enthusiastically gave me a rundown of this thing we do called Meat Standards Australia and how important and impactful uh, it has been on the industry. I got a real kick out of that, um, that somebody who was reasonably new in the organisation, reasonably new in the industry, probably wasn't born when we got started, didn't have any idea that I had an association with Meat Standards Australia. But And the good thing about that was that their enthusiasm was absolutely genuine, you know, and so that you, know, you talk about what the sort of thing that gives you joy, you know, being involved in knowing that I was involved in something that is now just part of what the industry does, and the the way that's been executed over time. You know, there's been so many people involved in that, which is fantastic. But to to now see that, it's it's really cool. Yeah, it's really cool. Can I ask something? Um, and you can tell me I'm silly for asking. Like, does does any 
ego or anything come into that where you think like, oh, come on, mate, I'm the CEO of the organisation. Did you not read the first three lines of who you're working for? I kind of can't win with any answer, right? Um, if I say, of course, you know, then it's like, ah, oh, yes. But and if I say no, not at all. Um, but but genuinely, no, it doesn't. No. And like I love, I love my job. I really in, in, enjoy my job. And and being managing director of the organisation is important to be able to do the sort of things that that I do in the organisation. Being managing director is not the most important thing that I actually do. So from a compliance point of view, it's very important. From a structural point of view, it's very important. And how we report and governance, all of those things, is very important. Mm-hmm. For, for me, the most important thing is is being able to be in, in, involved in an organisation that's trying to make a difference for the industry. And and how we make that difference uh, is, is much, much more important than who gets credit for it. And if MLA is going to be as successful as we can be, just given the nature of the industry and the nature of humans, we're not going to get credit for a bunch of the stuff that we do. And that's actually not the point because our our role as a service organisation, and it's very visible and all of those things, but, but our role is to actually make the industry better, to do things that otherwise wouldn't have been done, to do things that otherwise would have carried too much risk for individuals or organisations in the industry to do to solve problems, to drive things that will provide benefit to the industry where we're ultimately not going to be selling stuff. We're ultimately not trying to build shareholder value in MLA, the brand. We absolutely want MLA to be respected and be recognised and and have a uh, reputation around you know in, integrity and delivery and reliability and all of those things. But as far as the, the credit for those things that happen there, the industry recognising that they're good for the industry and that they're being applied and them being applied and used is much, much more important than necessarily the, the recognition we might get. Mm. So let's let's talk a little bit more about the red meat industry. So you started in the role 2019, same year that Humans of Ag was founded. And one thing, and, and I think our conversations earlier, which was talking around that kind of the negativity or the, the challenge of negativity in it, Humans of Ag really started because I was pretty frustrated by the the conversations we were having and, and it had come from getting an experience overseas in South Africa and seeing that, okay, actually the way people are into integrate and interact with agriculture is actually people who are involved in producing, moving, consuming, and it can be from people looking to do it from a prosperity lens or people literally doing it from a survival lens. Mm-hmm. One of the conversations which kind of frustrated me was what I felt like was this mountain we're making out of a molehill around alternative proteins. Is it a legitimate threat to the red meat industry? No, I don't think it is. And it's probably a good example, a bit of what we're talking about before. So we have this challenge in front of us. And like you say, the mountain out of the molehill, this is going to be a disaster. It's going to, and you've you've got commentary because our industry is um, so connected to everybody. So while very few people actually have a cow, most people actually eat beef and lamb. So it's very easy to make a connection with our industry, and we're uh, it's a we're a core part of the diet and the fabric of Australian society. You look at the sentiment study of people's connection to red meat as a staple. So um, it's very easy to to whip up a frenzy of conversation. We saw the same sort of thing with the exotic animal diseases, you know. And, and I think with uh, you know, these, all, these plant-based proteins, um, the, a bit of the unknown. And on one hand, you had uh, 
you know, quite um, unfairly and dishonestly in a lot of ways. You know, the way a lot of these new products were being promoted and denigrating the industry, you know, dishonestly and unfairly. Uh, but then also making claims about their own products, uh, which weren't true as well. And and that's quite confronting for us, uh, that if everybody believes that and if these things come through true, then this is going to be a problem. So this is actually going to be a disaster. But coming back to what we were saying before, you know, we've we've dealt with everything previously. You know, we shouldn't be naive, right? So um, we can't look at the data we've got on you know, vegans and veggies and there's you know, 7 or 8% in the population, which hasn't changed for 11 years except Two years ago, it went to nine. Then last year, it went back to five. You know, so, but we don't want to be sitting here in five years' time and saying, "Oh, remember when they were five percent and they're now whatever?" You know, we shouldn't be naive about these challenges. But we've got to find a way to to act, you know, in a positive way. And and part of that is how do we get uh, objective information? Um, so there's a few things about you know the plant-based proteins. I, I think that sector has done themselves and the rest of us a, a massive, massive disservice in the way that they actually approached the promotion and delivery of those products by denigrating the red meat sector to try and yeah. build reputation for themselves. But more importantly, by telling porkies about their product, you know, so like making stuff up about their product, making claims that they couldn't deliver on. And like we've seen every other time in history, consumers are smarter than that. And now consumers have worked that out. And um, I was at a business seminar earlier in the year and you know, there are investment bankers there talking about you know, these companies that they believe have actually destroyed the category. Yeah, wow. Now, we, we need all the protein we can get. You know, We've got to find a way to feed a growing world population that's increasing affluence and the, the need for protein is really quite significant. And we've all got to be able to work together, not unsimilar to you know, beef and sheep and chicken producers, you know, we, you know, we need protein to feed the world. Um, and I think they've done a, a massive, massive disservice. So absolutely a mountain out of a molehill. Um, but the other thing, I think that we, we didn't appreciate or we underestimated consumers' uh, commitment to and you know, respect and um, the value they place on our products and what we do and how we do it. So while these companies are saying our industry's bad for the environment and it's uh, bad for health and all of these things, that's not what the consumers believe. But you know, particularly in the developed world, you know, the uh, the consumers have a very positive view about our product and what what we do, and, and we've got to lean into that and promote that. And I think where red meat's really interesting, it's got the facts and science behind it. This would be a, a real ethical or moral dilemma question. Those people that were working in that alternative protein space, incredible marketers and their ability to shape a narrative. Why haven't we seen the red meat industry poaching any of them to come and do marketing in our industry? It's a very interesting dilemma, isn't it? Because, um, like, And it is because it's that it's dishonest marketing, but then it's that ability to convey um, and articulate a message which resonates with people in the first instance, is powerful. And, and maybe I'm a, a bad or good example of this. You know, self-promotion is not our thing as, as an industry. Um, largely, that connection with the consumer and the, uh, the view they have of, the positive view they have of our, in, of our industry, uh, a lot of that's directly as a result of our authenticity as an industry. Um, and, and we are really cautious about 
telling our story. One, one of the challenges we we have at MLA in, in trying to share the message broader is you know, trying to arm producers to tell the story because they're I mean they're absolutely the the best storytellers and consumers just love hearing from they love hearing from producers. But the majority of our producers have well, but I don't know all the information, and I wouldn't want to say anything that wouldn't be quite right. And um, you know, I, until I actually know a bit more, I'm not going to hop on social media and and talk about the things we do because I'm not exactly sure about what those details are. You know, but being authentic and genuine um, is is such a core part of what we do as an industry. And there's a pretty big gap between that and the approach that was taken you know, by by that sector um and, uh, so uh, the shorter version is it's a uh, you know the, the, the personality personality clashes you know a, a bridge too far yeah so but how do we learn from that so what are the things that they did in that engagement process putting aside the bit about making stuff up and denigrating our product but yeah. you know the, and our industry you know the engagement that they were able to capture you know, how, how do you do that with an established product, established industry where we have such a really a high level baseline and respect for our industry anyway? And I think that authenticity piece flows really nicely because this is, and you'll start to maybe pick up, Jason, I spend a lot of time on my own. I spend a lot of time thinking <laughs> and pondering. So um, as well, and I think this starts to, we can chat about the carbon neutral goal of the industry and all of that. But so one thing I'm wondering the mining industry, energy sectors, et cetera, they're all looking at ways to reduce their emissions. Um, in turn, I guess our share of those emissions potentially could actually rise depending on the speed that these industries move at. But I think like the thing that I always come back to, one thing we don't talk about um, as an industry, like the black and white fact of the matter is that people need to eat and that's people need to survive um, and they – eat with emotion and all the other reasons kind of behind it. Like, do we actually need to? Yes, we're humble and all of that, but is now the time for agriculture to actually step forward in true leadership in a global sense? I think it really is. And there's, and we're seeing more of those discussions happening. And I think more proactive engagement um, in the last, I don't know, how many years, four or five years probably, um, we've seen better connections across some of the international organizations to share information and particularly the pre-competitive space you know where we're going to go head to head with the us and japan around grain-fed beef but uh things like sustainability animal welfare human nutrition uh they're, they're going to be just as important they are just as important to us as food safety you know we don't we don't promote our product on a food safety point of view we don't say eat our product because it's safe Mm. And there's mightn't be because that you know, that undermines the credibility of of the category you know, and things like sustainability, you know, welfare, nutrition. Um, they're they're going to be global showstoppers for us if we don't stay in front of those. So so we are getting down that path, but there's certainly an opportunity for us to to do more of that and finding ways to do more of that and do it better uh, is certainly uh, one of the, you know, the the big opportunities from an industry point of view on a country point of view, how we better connect with those other areas. I think what you're describing about our emissions piece as a percentage of the overall inventory um, is, is a really interesting dilemma. And as an industry, I think it's been important for us to provide context uh, of our contribution to the overall inventory 
when we were such a large target and an easy target mm-hmm. because everybody recognises a cow but there's only a very small percentage of people are actually impacted if something happens to the cows because yeah. largely they, they're just an eater or they've got a job somewhere else but you put up a picture of a cow and they'll recognise it and it's like, ah, oh, right, okay, I can blame the cow I don't have to worry about how much I drive my car or how much of a consumer I am or whether I work in the mining industry or whatever it might be. So creating that context was really important. Um, but I think where you're heading with that question, whether you realise it or not, is is demonstrating our progress and our position and our credentials in isolation of what else might be going on is now more important than what it was. So demonstrating the perspective that we were only 20% of the inventory, now we're only, ha- we're only 10% of the inventory, we've halved our contribution to the inventory. The next part of that messaging is we've actually halved our emissions. Um, whether it was 20 to 10 isn't the point. The total emissions we had used to be this much and now it's this much. And these are the ways that we've done that, which has been largely through um, you know, increased productivity and production and managing our system better. It's not through things being forced on us or having to do things which are negatively impacting on our business. How, how we actually now tell our own story uh, is going to be much, much more important as those other industries you know, sort of work out you know, how they're going to you know, make progress themselves. Because like one of the other things that I often um, think about, like are we we sometimes hear people painting that agriculture is going to be the solution to climate change and and i actually go whoa like that's my personal kind of view is like oh you better to undersell than um and and over deliver than than the other way around look yeah do you see us just being like yeah is it as one-dimensional as that or like what's your view and how do you actually take a position on this it's not as one-dimensional as that uh but agriculture is absolutely part of the solution because we um we we manage such a large proportion of the land mass and the and the land mass is such a a big component of the the contribution and the solution to the, the climate activity um so we are absolutely part of the solution i think what we've got a precursor that is we didn't create the problem Mm. Agriculture did not actually create the climate challenge, whatever it is you believe about the climate challenge, whether you just whether it's just the principle of it or whether it's the actual piece or whether it's global warming or whatever it might be. Agriculture did not create this problem. We are absolutely part of the solution because we've still got to feed the world, people still got to eat, got to be able to do that in a sustainable way. And agriculture manages such a large proportion of the land mass so many of the things that will have a positive impact on a long-term sustainable basis to how we interact with the climate will be in the agriculture space. And the good thing about it is that largely agriculture has been more proactive than any other industry. So part of the shift we need to absolutely see happening is that uh, the, the recognition of the proactive stance that agriculture's taken in the way that it interacts with the environment and it being seen as part of the solution, not being seen as part of the problem. And and whether that's things like a ambitious CN30 goal or whether it's demonstrating the way that people have been managing their biodiversity uh, for decades, it now just has a label. Um, but you can the demonstrations of things like biodiversity, better land use, increase vegetation, improve um, ground cover, balance of tree and grass, whatever it might be. All of the examples of those things that are being used to demonstrate what's possible or what things might look like in the future have all been done a long time before 
these things became topical. We didn't we didn't mock them up in the last couple of years because you can't. So a big part of the messaging that you know, we've, we've now got to get in front of is we didn't create the problem. We're absolutely part of the solution and we have to be part of the solution because of the landmass, the amount of landmass that we manage. And we've got so many demonstrations as part of normal production systems, which show how we can manage these things better on a broader scale. And, and they're not new. Um, how we actually package, identify, label, promote those things is, is all part of what we're working through at the moment. And look, it's, so you, I'll say you inherited a, a, a very ambitious goal of carbon neutrality by 2030. Like how is the industry tracking to that? So it's actually tracking pretty well. Now, I can already hear, you know, the, what do you mean? Um, uh, and, and yes, yeah, so I inherited it. But it, the, the, the CN30 goal, that stake in the ground that Richard hammered in in 2017 with a great big hammer, is the single most influential thing that has happened in this space. There's quite a bit of discussion going on at the moment about you know, the, the appropriateness of a carbon neutrality goal rather than a climate neutrality goal. Um, and there's a whole range of things we can talk, we can cover quickly on those things. Um, but that's the single most important thing that's actually happened from our industry for a few reasons. So one, it got us focused. So it was really ambitious, but it got us focused. And and what gets forgotten a bit in that story is, you know, Richard said we're going to be seeing 30 by, um, you know, carbon neutral by 2030. And uh, and then off we went. It's like, well, hold on, he actually didn't. So what he said was, here's this report from CSIRO, and it says, with the right policy environment and the right investment in research and development, we can be carbon neutral in 10 years. Let's set a goal by 2030 and get cracking. So there's context around that position, which was really important, because then what we got, so then we spent a couple of years trying to work out what on earth does this mean and how we're going to get going on it. And, and we got ourselves corralled not just MLA, but the broader industry as well, along a path to how we can demonstrate progress, how can we invest in things that are going to make progress and how can we get further along that path. So that that stake in the ground gave us focus, it gave us ambition, and it actually got us looking at what is the line of sight from here to there? What are the sorts of things that are going to help us get along that path? Uh, and, and without that... Uh, I think there there would have been a, a lot less focus and direction and absolutely less progress on understanding what the drivers were and understanding what some of the solutions are as well. And so the, the key words which, which really stick out to me was with the right policy environments and the right investment. Are we on track with that or is that...? Yeah, I think we are. And there's been a really interesting report um, that... Um, it's being referred to as the CSIRO report. It's actually an MLA report that we commissioned and CSIRO did it for us, which was a, a bit of a stock take of where we're up to. And um, and there's a there's a range of interesting views out of that report. Um, but at a high level, what it says is that um, from where we're at at the moment, if we don't make any more material progress, we're not going to hit the target. So that's okay. 2017 was when we set the target. We're now in 2023, the first couple of years. We were working out what we do. We had a year of getting really underway. So we've had two or three or four years where we've been having a red-hot go at this. And we've got seven to go. We know a lot more than what we knew before. Um, I think it's a really good report that gives us some context around what the challenge is between now and 2030. Uh, and we'll learn a lot more along the way. So from where we were, 
2017, what we knew, what we understood, uh, to where we are now. I think as an industry, we've made fantastic progress and, and it's all been done in a proactive way. Uh, and we've now got seven years in front of us to say, right, is this still the right path that we're on and what progress can we make? And then we can have all of those conversations you know, more broadly from an industry point of view, but I think we're in great shape. And, and probably more importantly, what it's actually done is it's demonstrated intent and from a from a policy point of view, from an engagement with uh, our markets, engagement with uh, you know, the government and departments, um, you know, the industry is is seen as being being proactive because we're making investments and we're taking action in this space. But as as much as anything, um, that we're we're onto it, mm. um, and we have varying views. We have we have the full range of views still, <laughs> um, but but we're onto it. And uh, if we're just arguing about exactly where are we going to go on this journey and exactly how we're going to get there, that pretty much puts us in front of every other industry. So, um, and I think we, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll work that out. We'll, we'll work it out. So something I have wondered, so looking in my reading, I've seen that so lamb and sheep is already climate neutral. Um, so what, what, like, what is the difference and is there one that I guess is, yeah, the, is more important or actually the stepping stone to the other? Yeah. Um, so yes is the short answer, but it's also the easy answer because someone will hear me say yes to your question. I say, what was he saying yes to? Um, <laughs> so one's a stepping stone to the other. I, I don't think one's more important than the other. Um, so carbon neutrality, no net, no net emissions from the production system. Climate neutrality is not contributing any more to warming. So climate neutrality has uh, a more direct connection to the benefit of the biogenic methane cycle. So methane is one of the biggest contributors to livestock agriculture emissions. And we know that biogenic methane, so produced by ruminants, cycles through the system in a much shorter period of time, 10 or 12 years, than methane produced from other sectors. And provided we're not producing any more methane or any more emissions this year than we were 10 or 12 years ago, because that's cycling out of the system, then we're not contributing to warming. Gotcha. So the amount of emissions that we have are stable. But we're still producing some emissions, but we know some of them are cycling out as well. And that, so that, if you think about something like the Paris Commitment, we're saying we're going to limit the warming of the world to less than 1.5 degrees. Our contribution to that, if we're climate neutral, is zero because we're not contributing to warming. Whereas carbon neutral is saying we're either uh, capturing or or uh, or reducing you know, the um, all emissions that are being produced in the production system. It's sort of the next step along along the way. So uh, the climate neutrality measure is a fantastic measure of an industry being productive uh, and not adding any additional uh, emissions to the system to what it uh, has has previously done. Whereas the the uh, carbon neutral position is is not not putting any emissions at all into the system. You know, they're they're being you know captured or reduced or offset. Yeah. 
So in the in the carbon space, this is slightly unrelated. It involves an alcohol product. There's a, there's a beer which was needing malt barley, and they were trucking um, malt barley quite a distance to get the product. Do you reckon, like, the consumer's going to be more annoyed by the carbon footprint of a product or not having a product available? Like, I think of that in that beer example. Like, yeah, is the demand really coming from the consumers or would they be more annoyed if they look on the shelf and go, oh, my beer's not there? I would say absolutely more annoyed if the product's not on the shelf. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And um, at, at a much higher, um, uh, more global level, you know the the interest in climate or carbon neutrality in the developing world, where um, they have you know, they don't have enough nutrition to have their kids you know, grow and develop as they should be. Uh, their interest is certainly a lot less than ours, um, and that that's a perspective we need to to keep. You know, we're, we're in Australia. You know, we're we're in a very very privileged society. You know, it's a, there's there's not many places in the world that I know of where you know you're as well off as what we are we we can choose to do whatever we want like we have and, and you're okay you know we've got the systems in place to support anybody can make terrible decisions <laughs> on at every turn along, or different decisions every turn along the road in their life and they'll be okay you know so we, we can choose to do whatever we want um a lot of people don't have that choice so um we've we got to be careful we keep it in a bit of bit of perspective and I think we um we, we do get a little bit emotive about some of these discussions and it's a bit like some of our response to uh, you know our industry response to the, the the challenge or the or the difficulties in, in in front of us you know we can sort of overblow them sometimes um and the discussion around the around the climate i think is one of those where you know the world's going to end well the on, the only thing the only thing that is actually consistent in this whole discussion around environment, climate, all of those things, is every single prediction of the world ending has been wrong. Like that's actually the only thing that's actually consistent. But it's the one that gets people's attention. Like someone tells you the world's going to win, like that gets your attention. Mm-hmm. You know, um, pretty irresponsible, but you know, it gets your attention. So, uh, and I think that's one of our challenges in a in a privileged, developed society that to get somebody's attention, you've got to be pretty dramatic, saying to them, "We'd like to make a two or three percent improvement in the overall carbon footprint of your consumer patterns, which means you might have to make this tweak or that tweak or uh, put a timer on your air conditioner or something." Um, that's a very hard message to sell. Whereas the world's going to end, you know, we need to stop something that gets people's attention and. So trying to find that balance, and, and as an industry, you know, we've we've got to navigate through that environment where, you know, so much of the discussion is emotive, um, and the commentary is pretty emotive, uh, but we're part of the solution. Uh, so how do we actually manage that in a sensible, constructive way? Mm. So I've got got two questions I want to want to finish on, and I think the first one probably comes back to where we started. What is it that get you out of bed and, and why is it that you're still involved and passionate about Aussie agriculture and especially the red meat industry? How could you not be? Um, so I, I've been incredibly lucky, privileged over my career to see the progression of our industry. And and some days, you know, some days it's like, oh, it feels like I'm being bashed up by everybody. Um, but then I get the chance to talk to somebody about the shape of our industry now compared to the shape of our industry 25 years ago um, when we were a 
commodity generic system with very little support or structure behind it. And now we have individual ID, on-farm quality assurance, eating quality systems, market information, um, preferential access to all the major markets except the EU around the world. So we sell a high quality, consistent, highly credentialed product to the most discerning, discerning consumers around the world who pay a premium for it. And as a result of that, our industry prosperity and the prosperity of the people that are part of that has massively grown on the opportunity for everybody involved and it is significantly better. That didn't exist at the start of my career. Um, and to know that a young person coming into the industry the same way that I did has a materially different set of prospects in front of them to what I had, like that's pretty exciting. And to to have played a small part in some of that is like, that's cool. Like, it's really good. So, um, and I also firmly believe that we can tell this fantastic story about the journey we've been on the last 25 or 30 years, um, but uh, there's still so much more we can do because it's a, a lot of the way I think about these things is, like, well, this is great, but imagine. Mm. This is fantastic, but imagine. You know, um, with the success of some of our sectors and operators in those sectors, it's like, well, like they're awesome, but imagine if they were the average and if they were then that much better than the others like like imagine and so how how do we actually do that that like that's a there's not many industries that are like that like there's not many industries where there's that sort of opportunity um and and then to to see uh to see the the impact that that can have on the people that then benefit from those things uh whether that be people that work at someone like mla or or you, you see the commercial success out in the industry like that that's pretty cool and I think that well, that ties in really with what I guess our philosophy is with humans of agriculture. It's understanding what's the role and what does agriculture look like today, but how's it going to be better into the future? And I think that's the thing that we'll we'll forever have a job because we're always just what's next. How do and to your point, it's yeah. How do you lift that that next echelon of people actually up so they become the new average or whatever it might be? Um, one final question: you you get the chance to duck down the road here in Brisbane and chat to Year Ten students at a metropolitan school. What's your advice to them about considering a career in agriculture? It's a it's a really interesting question because it's very different to what it used to be. You know, you go back to when I was in high school. Uh, agriculture was a was a very um, conscious decision and pretty specific part. I went to an ag high school, and there weren't that many people out of our group that ended up actually in ag. Like some of them went back and were farmers. But a bunch of them then went out and did other things um, because they didn't take a specific ag path. The beautiful thing these days, talking to a bunch of Year 10 students, is you can actually do whatever it is that you're interested in and chances are there'll be a path for you in agriculture. Uh, and, and isn't that a wonderful thing that's happened in one generation where largely we were production-driven and that's back to being a commodity industry, I'm talking about livestock ag, you know, commodity industry at the mercy of external factors to now being a, a highly sophisticated connected supply chain system where you know, if, you, if you're an interest in science or engineering or um, health, um, psychology, you know, there's a, there's a massive, great big long list of things that you could be interested in. And, and the beauty of careers today that are so much more mobile than what they were uh, and you know the ability to 
to um, apply those skills in, in agriculture is so, so much greater than what it was. So the opportunity for anybody, regardless of what their training might be, uh, to go into agriculture is, is materially different to what it was. So we've got to just connect them with an animal. So then we actually take them outside and we show them a car for a lamb or, you know, so that, that livestock connection becomes a, a really important piece. You know, you talk about the shows, if I can just sort of tangent, you know, for one piece, you know, we, yeah, we often think about how we, um, uh, how we need to, we need to educate everybody. And it comes back to what I was saying about our producers telling their story, you know, well, I need to tell them everything. I don't understand everything. It's like, no, no, what they need to understand is that you're, you're Bob and you're a cattle producer and you love your cows and you do everything you possibly can to look after them. And that's why they should keep enjoying steaks because you're a good guy. It's like, but I want to tell them all about that. It's like, yes, I know. So, so we want to, we, we try to overdo it, but we've got to make this really simple connection. And I was watching it at the show a couple of years ago. Um, a family, I was just watching people come into our, into the MLA site because we had the igloo and we we're educating them and doing surveys and everything. I was watching this family come along, and I reckon if I wasn't standing where I was and they weren't work, walking where they were, we were never ever going to cross paths. Right. So they they were not from agriculture. They didn't have anything to do with agriculture, but they were diligently following the green path and they were stopping off at all the spots and they're going into our store next. And I thought, this is going to be fascinating. But as they were going around the corner, they had, I think they had three or four kids with them, a couple of older teenagers, but one little fellow looked like he was about 10. And he looks up across the road and, and sort of just adjacent to me and he goes, sheep. And the whole family just leaves everything they were doing, just gravitates across the road and they spend a few minutes you know, looking at the animals and then it was like chucking marbles on the concrete. They were just gone, right? I thought, okay, so here we are trying to educate them, but the thing that really got their attention was interactions with an animal. The other thing was that they were camels. <laughs> right? So here we are trying to have a scientific conversation and these guys got really excited because they saw a sheep. Now, the sheep happened to be a camel, but that was a really positive connection that they have. So here we are trying to educate people with high-tech science. What we should be saying is, I'm Jason, I'm from the industry. These are cows, you want to pat my calf? Um, isn't that great? We're good guys and we do everything we possibly can to make sure the meat you get um, is looked after in the best possible way. How good's your steak? My steak's great. I think you're a good guy. Thanks, mate. And off he goes and gets his yeah. dagwood dog. And so, so how we find these? How we find these interactions? Um, and that's is, a camel. That's exactly right. Exactly right. So, so I think we've got a lot of opportunity um, to improve that engagement. But I think for those young kids, uh, the number of and the range of paths they have into the industry is so different to what it was a generation ago. And um, and us demonstrating that you know, it's a good option, good opportunity, and do whatever it is that they're interested in, and, and we'll find a role for them in agriculture. Well, thank you for sharing that. And I think as you were saying that, like what we chatted about at the beginning was literally before we started, Bruce McAvaney advice, be prepared, um, be comfortable and be yourself. I actually think... We've got a little campaign here, whereas literally it is just be yourself. Don't try and pretend that you're Jason Strong, the managing director of Meat and Livestock Australia, or you're a scientist with CSRO. You're whoever you are at whatever point you are. That's what people want to know. That's what they want to connect with. And I think that's the really powerful thing. And it's going, well, we don't need one person who's got all the answers. We've actually got 100 people who come from different parts of the supply chain, from different backgrounds, different passions. And that's the story that is 
red meat or Aussie agriculture or whatever it might be. It really is. And it's that authenticity about um, I'm involved in agriculture because I love it and I believe in how fantastic it is and how fantastic it can be. That's why I do the things I do. And it goes for so many of us. And it's a, it is a great story. It's a thing that resonates with our consumers. And that's definitely the consistent thing. Well, Jason, thank you so much for taking the time. I know you're a busy man, but I really appreciate having a chat with us. Thanks, Ollie. It's been great. Thank you. Cheers. Well, that's it for another episode from us here at Humans of Agriculture. We hope you're enjoying these podcasts. And, well, if you're not, let us know. Hit us up at hello at humansofagriculture.com. Get in touch with any guest recommendations, topics, or things you'd like us to talk and get curious about. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. Rate, subscribe, review it. Any feedback is absolutely awesome and we really do welcome it. So look after yourselves, stay safe, stay sane. We'll see you next time. See ya.